0: Um, Verse 1, chapter 16, 1 Samuel. Uh, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And you remember last week, Saul was rejected. He was disobedient. uh, And and God took the kingdom away from him. And now Samuel's grieving. Um, I think it's important just to note here that that all grieving must come to an end. You got to keep moving forward. And here, this is God telling Samuel, Samuel, I have a great work to be done. Let's get up. Let's keep moving. Let's not stop. And uh, God tells him here, he says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among the nations. Now, here we mentioned, uh, we learned about Jesse. You actually, if you were just reading straight through the Bible, you would have found out about Jesse from the book of Ruth um, because uh, Ruth is this beautiful story of, of how God works in, in unique ways. And um, Jesse is uh, the son of Obed, who is the son of Ruth. And so Jesse is the grandson of Ruth. And we'll see in a minute, David is the son of Jesse. who So Ruth and uh, David would have been, what is that, great-grandmother? Um, So that's just connecting dots here for us. I also find it interesting here at the end of this verse um, how God says to Samuel, to go and I will provide for myself a king among his sons. Why doesn't God just come out and say, um, Samuel, I need you to go and and anoint David, son of Jesse. Uh, I think this serves as a reminder, a teaching moment for Samuel that that God allows Samuel to, uh, to guess, as we'll see in a minute, he, he's guessing at who the next king will be. And Samuel ends up being o for 7. Uh, kind of like my batting average. He's just o for 7. And um, even though Samuel might be the godliest man on earth at this time, it will be a reminder for him of, of, of how much holier God is than he is and how Samuel will need a new way of seeing. He needs this new vision. Uh, verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If, Saul's, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. So Saul was still the king, even though God rips the kingdom away from him and he's going to anoint someone else. Saul was still the king. People recognize him as king. And Samuel was like, uh, if I go and anoint another king, you remember, remember Saul, he was big and strong, great warrior. If he knows that I'm going to go uh, anoint another king, what might... Happen to me, God? And God answers. He says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Uh, I, I love that contrast between chapter 15 and 16, how here we see Samuel did What God commanded. In chapter 15, Saul did not do what God commanded him. God gave him a very specific command. Saul did as much as he thought he should do. Here Samuel's completely obedient. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and saying, Do you come peaceably? Now, if we'd have kept kept through reading, like we didn't finish all of chapter 15 last week, but I just wonder you know, the elders here, they're afraid of Samuel. Why were they so afraid? It could have been that word got back to them of what Samuel did at the end of chapter 15. Remember, uh, God told Saul to to wipe out, to destroy the Amalekites. And um, Saul didn't do it. He kept the king. Remember that? King Agag. At the end of chapter 15, verse 33, uh, it says that Samuel took King Agag and hacked him into pieces. So, I don't know if word had gotten back and the elders go, oh, here comes Samuel to visit us. Like, we are so afraid. And, you know, do you come peaceably? And in verse 5, Samuel says peaceably. And you can imagine the excel of the elders just, whew, okay, we're, we're good with him. He says, I have come the sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And consecrate Jesse and his sons. And in and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." Now, why did Samuel say this? Samuel looked at this guy, and he looked like a king. Um, but verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature." Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And here, this is where I'm pulling from that we need new spiritual eyes, that we need a new way of seeing. In verse 7, it is such an important verse for the church today. Uh, People often look at the outward appearance of others. And here we see Samuel doing the same thing. That we often choose what is impressive, powerful, attractive to our eyes. And there's nothing new under the sun. This was happening before um, us, before Samuel, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.6 says this. Genesis 3.6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve, they judged um, the appearance of that fruit, and it looked good to the eye. Even though they knew it was wrong, That it looked good and so that look that appearance trumped what they knew and um, ever since the garden mankind we have walked by sight and not by faith that's how we function uh, we like things that are flashy and shiny to our eyes kind of catches our attention um, I know Uwe over here he, he works in the um, business department at Marshall and you've had marketing classes I mean you, you, you know how I mean when you watch TV I mean they're getting our attention right i mean they're 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 they know how we're wired that we like flashy things, and um verse seven reminds us of how we're flawed uh that you and I were flawed in our discernment about others, and Samuel he was a godly man, and even he struggled showing partiality uh towards the appearance of others um, the New Testament warns that this way of thinking is it's dangerous for the church and, and how it just slips into our congregations. James 2, James 2 verse 1, James writes this, My brothers, show no partiality, no favoritism, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has, has God not um, chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really f- fulfill the world law according to the scripture, you shall love, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, has become guilty or cannibal of it all. Uh, this verse just screams our need for the gospel. Uh, and we'll, we'll spend some time in, in verse 10 in a minute. But I, I know of church plants who strategically place uh, their church plant location in uh, wealthy neighborhoods. And don't get me wrong, rich people need, need Christ. Uh, they need Jesus too. But that was not the heart of these church plants. It was, let's go around the rich people because they will be the ones who can, it will be quicker for us to support our budget. Um, you know, planning near a college campus, it's a little trickier. Uh, you, know, how, you know, college students, you're, you're really not you know, keeping the budget going here at MCF. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm thankful that you guys give. I remember when I was in college, I worked, on, I worked at Kroger on 1st Street. 1st um, uh, Street what was at West and 7th, and I made about $70 a week, and I would give $7 to First Baptist Canova. That was, but, you know, that, that wasn't keeping the lights on at Canova. Um, but um, there are church plants that strategically do that. Um, I was at a church recently recently. And everyone looked exactly the same. They were all just real pretty and thin, North Face jackets, coffee in their hand. And we're not talking about, you know, this wasn't Simi Valley, California. Um, this was a context very similar to Huntington, West Virginia. But everybody looked exactly the same. And uh, one, of the, one of the leaders at this church actually, uh, he actually said to me, that, that he fired a girl from the church because she was quote-unquote weird. That, that's why he he fired her. Um, she wasn't like the rest. And uh, I, I just thought, man, I pray that we will never be the cool church. You know, I don't want to be that. I, I want to be the church that has a heart for Christ, that no matter what you look like, whatever background you come from, um, that you feel welcomed here at MCF. I think Huntington's just... Huntington's, it's a strange place, right? It's like this socioeconomic melting pot where on one block you can have a million-dollar house and then two blocks over it's just uh, projects, drugs right there. I mean, I, it's just amazing. And I, I honestly think that our church should reflect that, that, that we should have the poorest people who are maybe on government aid and then we have wealthy people um who the government take a lot from. And so you have both sides. Uh, you have both sides here at MCF. Uh, last week, we looked at how Saul was about ninety five percent obedient. And I shared how God does not desire partial obedience. he does He desires total surrender, that partial obedience is complete disobedience. What this James passage is saying here is that, is that sometimes, we'll, sometimes people will justify these little sins. Uh, that's what he's getting to, like verse 8, 9, and 10, um, where, where you might think, well, I, you know, I, I've done all these things, and yet you know, I may show partiality, or I may judge others, but at least I'm not murdering anyone. Uh, and James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become accountable or guilty of all of it. And it just shows you our, our, our need for Christ to come and die for us. That, that man, we can be really good. You can be 99% good and 100% lost. And, and that's what James is trying to communicate to us. That, that man, our hearts are born wicked. I had the privilege uh, this past, uh let's see, when was it? Thursday night. I have been sick, so I, I've not been able to do this until now. But I, I got to meet baby Caroline. That's Caleb and Meg's. Uh, new baby, who is, I think, about four weeks, maybe, something like that, and I got to meet Caroline. She's so beautiful. And I look at her. I'm like, oh, she's so sweet and innocent, but her heart is it's lost. It's, it's, it, she'll, Caleb and Meg will find out very soon that that her heart needs uh, uh, God's regenerate grace and mercy, and and uh, it's amazing how fast that happens, that we're all broken and distorted and um that we often judge by appearance by the outward and and that's just one of many sins that we've committed and um you know i think we're probably all guilty of from the phrase judging a book by its cover uh we we do that and um and even even recent studies show us that um that attractive teachers are more effective. And you can find all kinds of studies on this, that, that, that uh, attractive teachers seem to be more effective. Um, and we do this with athletes. You know, we'll say things like, well, he just looks like a, a, a quarterback. And, you know, here's a good example of, you know, look at Tom Brady. His beautiful hair. This is old Tom Brady. I mean, young, but old picture of Tom Brady. This is flowing locks. Uh, you know, you remember how, like, Saul last week, we were introduced to Saul, and he was, like, he was like the most handsome man in all of Israel, and how there is these other guys from his hometown who hated him. You know, that's kind of like Tom Brady. You're like, Josh, like, he's just a good-looking dude. He got, like, a man crush on Tom Brady, and just a great quarterback. Um, and then, like, he gets knocked out, and then you put in his backup, and his backup <laughs> is just as good-looking as like it's just ridiculous and so we do this with athletes people just you know they look like a quarterback you look like a basketball player no one's ever told me that no one's ever said you look like you play basketball Uh, why because I'm short okay I I get it Um, why is this so wrong why is it wrong to judge on appearance the outward appearance of men, when we look only at the appearance of men? We completely miss the most magnificent part of all of creation. We just miss it. There's one major thing that separates mankind from the rest of creation. That you and I, that we are image bearers. That's what separates us from the rest of creation. Is that the image of God is resting upon mankind. This image is, is however, not a physical image. A lot of times people think that when it says that we're creating his image that God looks like us. It's not a physical image that Genesis is talking about. It's a a characteristic. It's attributes of God. That we have these attributes of, of, of God. And Genesis 1 so powerfully informs the reader that all mankind bears this image of God. And Christ shows us he is this perfect representation of God. What could not be known about God, God, Jesus fully made it known to us that we could see who God was by how Jesus, not how he looked, but how he lived. And therefore, because of Genesis 1, all mankind, everybody, has tremendous value. The homeless guy that maybe we look by when we walk and God, just thinking, oh, is he going to ask for money or is she, what does she want? Like that person has tremendous value. They have the image of God resting upon them. It doesn't matter what you look like, tall, short, young or old, dark skin or light skin or any shade in between. God has, a, God has put his eternal, matchless, immeasurable value on you, Every person has tremendous value. But the value is not found in what the person looks like. It's found in that they bear, they contain the image of the immortal, invisible God. And this is why we need to stand up for things like uh, equality of race, gender. The racism we see in our country right now, it's a gospel issue. It's rooted in Genesis 1. Um... And so we see here that, that God's telling Samuel he needs to correct his vision. Samuel, this godly man, sees skewed. It's a, it's a skewed vision uh, that he has. And so in verse 8, um, we continue to pick up from this narrative. It says, verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse uh, made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. I'm amazed at how uh, the Lord just called out Samuel for judging by appearance. Then here, um, the author uh, describes how David looks. You know, he, well, he's beautiful. Look at those eyes on that boy. He's just beautiful eyes. Uh, ruddy means kind of reddish, so he's probably maybe, maybe red beard. Um, maybe. I'm, I don't know. But he was a reddish guy, um, beautiful eyes, was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Uh, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here God picks the weakest and the least. Of Jesse's sons. Now it's, it's, it's important to rem- remember that Israelite kings, they weren't crowned uh, with a crown but anointed with oil. Oil was poured just over their heads. So the king was literally the anointed one. And you remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. The, the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. If you look in the Hebrew Bible, uh, that word there, Messiah, is what has been translated in your Bible as anointed. Um the Greek word is Christ. And so Saul had been this this anointed one. He had been like this this Messiah-like figure. And now David comes. Um, he becomes this anointed one or this Messiah, Christ-like figure. Um, homework for this week. Read first John. First John talks about how you are this anointed one. That you are these Christ-like. Uh, it's amazing how. You connect these dots here. Um, here, is a, 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 here are a couple observations. Uh, notice how David was not out promoting himself. When we come to David in the story, where was he? Jesse said he's keeping the sheep. And David wasn't out promoting himself. And I just say college students play, uh, pay close attention here. David was faithful with his lowly job. Um, if God wants to give you a major platform, then God will find you right where you are. That you don't have to go out and promote yourself. Um, I, I just think back to even even our church. You know, we're a church plan of First Baptist Canova. First Baptist Canova years ago. There's a some of you grew up with him, a guy named Michael W. Smith. Uh, maybe college students, you don't know who that is anymore. But uh, to those of us who are maybe thirty and older. He's like the David Crowder, the um, Chris Tomlin. I don't know who, uh, who's today. Wren Collective. I don't know anymore. Um, I have children. I just watch like little Einsteins and. Um, but Michael W. Smith, um, all the musicians, Christian, you know, these contemporary Christian artists, they're all drinking from the well that Michael W. Smith dug during the 80s and 90s. Uh, he, and, and God raised him up from First Baptist Canova, playing on the piano there in the, in the uh, sanctuary at First Baptist Canova. God raised him up, and now, man, Michael W. Smith's played before kings, queens, um, the president of our country. He, he's been all around the world playing. Um, and God raised him up from right here in First Baptist Canova, little town of Canova, West Virginia. God will, God will find you. If God wants to give you a major platform, he will find you right where you are. David wasn't um, discovered by some agent. God raised him up. Second observation is that God will often place you in a position that is preparing you for what he has next, and you won't even realize it. I, I call this the Karate Kid leadership model. Uh, you remember the, the movie Karate Kid? Um, how, like, I'm going old, old karate kid, so, like, Daniel. Um, Daniel was learning how to paint Mr. Miyagi's fence, sand the deck, paint the house, wax his car, and he gets so mad. He's like, I've, you know, I came here to learn karate, and all you've taught me is, you know, all this, I've just been working my tail off for you. And uh, that's when he, you know, gets mad, he's getting to leave, and Miyagi yells at him, and, and, uh, and then in that moment, Uh, you know, he says, show me, you know, paint the fence or wax the card. And then he, you know, he he shows him, no, I've, what I've been teaching you has been preparing you for this karate tournament. And I think oftentimes we, we overlook that like God has you in this place where you're learning these things and you just think maybe like you're above it. And God's going, no, I I got you here for a reason. Uh, And I think that's what is happening here with David. David was learning how to shepherd Jesse's sheep. But in fact, God was preparing him to shepherd his sheep, the people of Israel. Um, as we've, you know, I, I think it's interesting how God refers to us as being sheep. And when you study sheep, sheep aren't very bright. And so you, it's like God, you know, kind of, what's he saying about us? And so shepherding sheep, uh, literal sheep, might not be much different from being the king of Israel, shepherding the people of Israel. Maybe they're very stubborn. Uh, David was learning how to fight off lions and bear, as we'll see in the next chapter, while he was um, a shepherd, and this was preparing him to fight difficult battles um, like Goliath. And as the king, um, he's going to have many, many uh, difficult battles ahead of him. Being a shepherd must have had a lot of downtime where David uh, could practice playing the, the lyre or harp. And as we'll see in just a minute, um, God will use this gift to grant him favor in the eyes of King Saul. And so when David became king, his job description did not change. Uh, the only thing that changed was his flock. He went from shepherding one flock to shepherding another flock. And um, your current position, occupation, may be exactly where uh, God, is, God has you. here. He's training you right now for what's next. I remember when I was in college, I uh, I, I did not realize how God was going to use my. Um, I, I used to be in the army, and I was a, a business major at Marshall. I did not I didn't have a clue how God was using those two positions to to help me in ministry. I think, practically speaking, being in the army and a business major helped me uh, so much more than even seminary. Seminary. Taught me how to read the Bible and, you know, gave me some good theological understandings. But as far as leading people, a seminary is not for, it's just, that's not what it's for. And, but the military and being a business major really helped me just learn how to, you know, how do you treat people? As a leader, we were taught in the military never to do, a a good leader would never ask something that he himself would not do. Uh, I think there's something there to to that, that uh, I pray as a leader, um, you know, that, that, as elders, that we would model that. And I love how Bruce, uh, and Bruce would, he, right now he's squirming, he's like, please don't mention me. Bruce likes to be behind the scenes. But Bruce is one of our elders, and instead of him sticking out his chest, going, well, you guys need to serve me as an elder, you know who, um, you know who puts out the signs every week? You know who locks up the building and unlocks it, takes the tra- trash out? Bruce, one of the elders. I mean, it's just... I pray that, that we set the example of just serving, that we are servants. I think Christ sets that example. Um, here's, here's the point. Be faithful in where God has you right now. Be a man and woman of integrity. Don't complain about your job. God has a purpose for you right where you are. David wasn't moaning about being a shepherd. Oh, I, I wish I could be a... How come my brothers got to go meet Samuel? I got to stay back here with the sheep. He's not moaning. He's just being faithful. He made the most of his opportunity. And I don't think in a million years he ever thought that that practicing the harp uh, would be what God used um, to prepare him to be king. Um, I just think if you're 40 or under, which is most in this congregation, uh, you've been influenced by our culture that things should just be handed over to you. And it's just, I mean, it's just our society now that that uh, this generation, I'm kind of right on the border of that, where we just want what our parents have, but we want it now, where our parents work for things. Um, and then we we kind of feel like we shouldn't start out in that entry-level job. That entry-level job may be the exact place where God is going to prepare you for his greater purposes. And I love how God anoints David as king. <laughs> but David does not turn into some of this prima donna he just he's just this humble guy let's keep reading look at this verse 14 now the spirit of the lord departed from saul and a harmful spirit from the lord tormented him and saul's servant said to him behold now a harmful spirit from god is tormenting you let our lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre that's, that's a, that means harp. It's a, it's a smaller version of a harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Uh, one of the young men answered, behold, I, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethelite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. I just want you to remember back in chapter 8 when God told Samuel to tell the people, uh, If you get a king, these are all the things that this king's going to do. And one of those things that the king is going to do is that he's going to take your sons and daughters, and they're going to be in battle with him or be his servants. Here's the fruition of that, of that warning back in chapter eight. Saul was taking David away from Jesse. Verse twenty three. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now this is a it's this is a weird passage in a sense. Um verse 14 can be difficult to read. Um most translations render this word, this Hebrew word, uh, ra. They render it as uh as evil. So maybe your translations have the word evil, that Saul um has this evil spirit from the Lord. Um it it, it can really mean harmful. Um and uh If you read his as evil, I think sometimes we think it's like, does it mean like he's like demon possessed? That's not what what this is talking about. Tim Chester comments on this passage. Um, He says this. He says, the biblical writer is making the point that as David, this future king, gained the spirit of Yahweh, so Saul, the rejected king, lost it. And God so controlled events that Saul's loss led him to need music. And Saul's own attendant led him to David. In that sense, Saul's evil spirit, his anxious state of mind, was under God's control. And so in the New Testament, when you see this, the spirit, the spirit came upon people to equip them for a specific task, like to rule, to prophesy, or to build. It was task-oriented. Um, in the case of a king, the spirit provided them with, uh, with both the authority and ability to rule. That was the spirit's role. Um, Saul remained God's anointed king, but without the spirit. The spirit was removed. And so Saul's authority and his ability to rule began to fade. Um, and while Saul remained the king on paper, uh, I just stand in awe of, of how David, who's been anointed king, he just, he just walks with humility. No, notice that David was anointed in the first half of chapter 16, I mean, there's this. It's a public anointing. The elders were there. His brothers were there, and everyone, you know, they see David being anointed. It wasn't It wasn't just Samuel hiding David in the corner and hey, I don't tell anybody I'm going to do this. People saw him being anointed, and they knew what this anointing was. It was to be king. That's what that that word is. This Messiah, this Christ-like figure, the Savior, and. But you notice that when David meets Saul, you, he doesn't like. And you know Saul's like, "Hey, uh, um, can you can you play music for me when I get a headache or when I'm troubled, um, when I'm just depressed? It'd be really nice if you would play some music for me. I hear you're really gifted. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? If you just had somebody just walk around with Andrew, just follow me around all week, just kind of play. Hey, uh, just play this, okay? Uh, but David." You know, he was so humble. He had complete respect for the Lord's anointed. That even though, like, he knew that he was going to be the king, that Saul was still, and and David will refer to Saul as the anointed. How can I go against the Lord's anointed? That's how he'll refer to him later. Um, But notice he doesn't go to Saul, like, when Saul says, hey, will you play music for me? David's not like, hey, you see this this oil in my hair? Uh, Yeah. you ever wonder why this oil's in my hair, Saul? I'm the king now. You know, I, I'm the anointed one. Uh, you know, it doesn't say, uh, you, know, you know, that throne you're sitting on. You need to hop up, bub. That's, that's mine. I'm the guy. Um, but man, you don't see that at all. David knew the true king was not the one with the court but the one with the Lord. That's what David knew. He knew that just being with the Lord, that was, that was sufficient for him. That was enough. He was so humble. He had complete respect for Saul. Um, and I think David points us to another humble shepherd king. Just as David was overlooked because of his outward appearance, because he was small and young, there was another king that was overlooked um, by his appearance, the prophet Isaiah writes about this man, this king that would be overlooked. Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not now who is Isaiah 53 talking about you good Sunday school answer, Jesus that's right Jesus good job um it seems that from Isaiah's depiction of Jesus none of us would have probably picked him to be the guy you know he just didn't look like the quarterback uh you know who would follow him this lowly man, this man of sorrow. Uh, Jesus may not have had the looks, but he had the heart of a true leader. And King David, he, he proved that he was, uh, he was a good shepherd because uh, he was willing to risk his life for the sheep. And so also King Jesus proves that he is the ultimate good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. John ten eleven reminds us of this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As we move to the Lord's Supper this morning, I just want us to reflect on the truth of Jesus being this good shepherd. I mean, think about this. He is the king. I mean, he is the anointed one. You know, Saul and David and Solomon, and there'll be many other kings, hundreds of kings in Israel's history. This is the king. This is the Messiah, the Christ. And um, this king laid down his life for his people, for his sheep. You know, as we talked about sheep, you know, uh, is that an assaulting phrase that we're not very bright or kind of stubborn? Um, If so, think about that. Think about how maybe people would look at us as not being very valuable. But here the good shepherd looks at you and he sees extreme value. Uh, I think about the, the office of president, and I have a hard time seeing the president um, in a time of need laying down their life for people. Um, but the ultimate king looked at you as being so valuable that he didn't run and hide in this little shelter, but he went and experienced death so that you could experience life. And so this morning, we get to participate in something very special. It's the Lord's Supper this morning, and it serves as a reminder uh, of us, um, of our need for us having this Good Shepherd. And so the Lord's Supper here at MCF, it's, um, if you are a uh, a follower of Christ, then you can participate with us. You don't have to be a, a covenant member here at MCF. As long as you're a follower of Christ, um, you would identify as being a Christian, you're welcome to to um to take communion with us this morning and there's just two stations and both stations will have bread and the cup and the bread represents Christ's body that that as the shepherd as the Good Shepherd he he risked his life it was beaten broken for us the cup represents his blood that was poured out for us that his he covers our sins um, that when we even though I don't if any of you think that you're 95% obedient, where well, I, 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 I would definitely need God to grade on a scale. You know, like when you take that exam, college students, and you bomb it, but then like you see like the professor like scaling it and you're like, oh, I still passed. Like, so, you know, that's how I would need salvation to work. Um, if, it was, if it was on like a grade, because um, I'm not gonna, you know, if, if passing is 60%, would you call yourself 60% good? I, I, I don't know if I could do that. And to think that God requires 100% good. And so there's no way I'd ever be good enough. Um, and so I'm thankful that Jesus took my place. Uh, that, that he was perfectly obedient. And in, in, in his perfect obedience, that you and I can become righteous. So God's, he gave us his righteousness through Christ. And so that's, we just, this morning, it's just a reminder of what Christ has done for us. So I'm gonna pray for us, and whenever you're ready, you come and um, and um, take of the Lord's Supper. Father, this morning, we are thankful. Um, we're thankful that you are the good shepherd, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for us. Father, we're thankful that you... Um, that you don't use us by outward appearance, that you look at the man's heart. And Lord, we're thankful that you've given us a new heart. You've put a new spirit inside us. And so Lord, this morning I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would not take it uh, too lightly. Um, That we wouldn't make a mockery of the Lord's Supper, that we would that we'd approach the table this morning um, with a clear conscience and the right mind Father I pray that we would um, be encouraged by what Christ has done for us, that he's laid down his life for us even while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us and Father I pray that that would just motivate us to love others. That with the great love with which you've loved us, that now in turn we would go out and love those who may not be so easy to love. Lord, may we invest in their lives. But may may we remember this morning what you've done for us. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.